So in the year 1994, in the country of Rwanda, a civil war broke out, really what became a genocide when the majority people, the Hutus, began to slaughter the Tutsis. By the time the genocide was over, there were between 500,000 and 800,000 people dead. We're not sure of the exact numbers because of the extent of the slaughter. But what is perhaps even more amazing or astounding to me about the size of this is at that time, Rwanda was known as perhaps the most Christian nation on earth. It's estimated that at that time, nearly 90% of the nation claimed and labeled themselves as a Christian. Imagine that, a country where 90% of the people call themselves Christian and they enter into a civil war which kills over a half million people, a slaughter of people. And it's a question to ask ourselves is, did they lose their distinction? What does it mean to be a Christian if we're willing to slaughter each other? To ask ourselves maybe the question, had they become Christian, but at the same time remain more so Hutus and Tutsis? What was their true identity? What was shaping and molding them? And the story of the Bible is a story of God calling His people. We heard a little bit about God rescuing His people out of slavery, but He called them out of slavery. And part of the role that God gave to His people was to be a distinct people. It started on the earliest pages of our Bible when God calls Adam and Eve and appoints them to reign and to rule. And then as they fall into sin, God calls Abraham and says, I want you to become a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and your people will be a light for people. And then he becomes the nation of Israel, and they're called out of slavery, and they're brought to Mount Sinai, and he, there he tells them they will be a kingdom of priests to the world, that they will shine the light of God into the world. And then Jesus comes and demonstrates the same thing, and then gives that same task to the church to be his representatives to shine his light into the world, and to be a distinctive people, to be something different that people look on. And here, the passage we're going to spend our time on this morning in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses the description of salt and light to say the same thing. So the context of what Jesus is talking about, we have doing a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as it's commonly called, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And Jesus is preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God, that God is coming to restore the world as it's meant to be, that God's reign is coming and it's coming in Jesus. And he begins by describing what it means to be blessed, how God works in people. He offers these words we call the Beatitudes, where he says, God is rescuing people and he's rescuing the outcasts, those who are poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek. But he's also inviting us into a different way of living, inviting us into a different way of living. And then he offers those words, you are the salt of the earth. And I want you to notice what he does not say. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out as he writes on this. He, he does not say, you should be the salt. He doesn't say, you have salt. He simply says, you are the salt of the earth. So who's he talking to? Well, those who have followed him, right? He's talking to these group of people who have committed to. So the story just before this, Jesus has gathered people and he's called and he says, come follow me. And that's not just a invitation from Jesus to play follow the leader. 
It is, but a much more advanced version of follow later because he's calling them to follow him and to become like him, to give their lives to him, to live under his authority. And these people have fallen, and so he begins these words, and he talks about being salt and light, and he talks about the deeds, and I think we have to put those all three together. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in the same way, let your light shine so that people may see your good deeds. And so we're going to look at those three little parts and then put them together. So the first begins in Matthew 5.13, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. How many of you like salt on your food? How many of you have been told by your doctors not to put so much salt on your food? Yeah. But, there, but there's something about salt, and salt has lots of different uses. Salt has many different uses, and we think of it most commonly as a flavoring. We also may think of it as a preservative. But in the world of the Bible, there are other uses for salt. It's used for many different things. And so I think as Jesus is talking about salt, he may have some of these in mind. So in Exodus 30, verse 35, he says, And make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is be salted and pure and sacred. So there's a sense where salt is used as a symbol of purity. Or in Leviticus 2.13, he says, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. The salt of the covenant. So salt also in some sense represents this covenant, this agreement between God and his people, this, this act of faithfulness between them. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't talk about salt as a preservative. No, certainly the people of that time knew that salt acted as a preservative. So what does he mean when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth? Are we flavoring? Are we a preservative? Are we something else? And sometimes it's tempted to whatever means the most to us, that's what we decide it means. But I think part of it comes from when Jesus says this strange thing. Did you hear what he said? He said, but if the salt loses its saltiness. How many of you ever had salt that loses its saltiness? What does it mean to even lose its saltiness? Perhaps there's a sense where sometimes if salt is mixed in with other chemicals, it can lose it. But what's interesting is that language that Matthew records here, losing its saltiness, can also be translated a different way. It can mean become foolish. So, losing saltiness and becoming foolish, or losing its taste is what it says, losing its taste or becoming foolish, same kind of language. And so I think there's a connection there because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches and he gives this story, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we were go to chapter 7. Jesus tells a story. And he tells a story about two people who build houses, two men who build a house. One builds his house on a rock and one builds it on sand. And the rains come down. What happens to the one on the rock? Stays there. What happens to the one on the sand? Gets washed away. And Jesus describes the one who builds the house on sand as foolish. But what's the difference between the two? When he, Jesus talks about it, he says, the one who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears what I say and puts it into practice. And the one who builds his house on the sand is the one who hears what I say 
but doesn't do it. And so I think Jesus is getting at the same thing with losing its saltiness, is these are people who don't do what Jesus asks them to do. They don't remain loyal to him. Because in the same way, remember, build a house on rock, the rains come or the end comes, judgment comes, and the house stands. House on the sand, rains come, judgment comes, the house is washed away. You have the salt, remains salty, stays good. What happens to the salt that doesn't remain salty? It's thrown out becomes, as one writer calls it, it becomes road dust. It gets tossed away. And he's saying saltiness can fade. He says, don't be foolish. Don't lose what makes you distinct, I think is what he's talking about. It's this idea of purity and faithfulness that we heard from Exodus Leviticus. Jesus is looking at these followers and he's saying, you are a distinct people. Or in some translations, I like the translation often used in First Peter there is, you are a peculiar people. And some of us are peculiar for sure, some more so than others. But Jesus, I think when he says, when Peter talks about it, when Jesus talks about it, he says, a peculiar people. In other words, we're distinctive. We're different from what's around us. And we'll come back to that. But essentially what he's saying is, don't give loyalty to another Lord. Don't be something else. Some of you may know I um, often go on long runs, and in this weather, I need something to drink when I'm going on long runs. But I also also need salt when I'm running, because as, as you sweat, you lose salt. And I've been experimenting with some different additives to my water to try and get some salt when I'm drinking. And I got one recently, and on the box it says in big letters, stay salty. <laughs> and I was thinking of that today. Was, that's in part Jesus' message to us is, stay salty. Be distinctive. Don't lose what I have called you to be. Because Jesus is calling people and he's saying, you are different. You're called to be different. And I want you to stay salty. And then he goes on, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Again, not you should be light. Not you have a light but you are the light of the world. And a hidden light loses its purpose. When I was growing up, our church would often take trips down to Missouri, and we would go um, canoeing there. But one of the things we liked to do is we would, as we traveled down the rivers, we would stop and we would find caves. And we would go exploring in the caves. And we'd take our flashlights and we'd go back in the cave. And when you get deep in the cave, you turn the lights off and see how dark it But I was thinking about that. He's like, if we had our lights and we turned them on and we covered them up the whole time, would the light do any good? No. And that's what Jesus is saying. is like a light is not supposed to be hidden. The only way a light works is if it's out in the open. A hidden light loses its purpose. And I think in part what Jesus is saying to the church is if we withdraw, if we go off and camp in our own little places, if we go and we hide off in little places, and there were people in Jesus' time called the Essenes, who interestingly enough lived by the Dead Sea, which was a sea full of salt. But they lived and they lived by this sea and they withdrew from all the world around them. They said, oh, we're going to follow God, but we're going to do it in this little hidden community where nobody sees us. Jesus is saying, you're not doing any good there. 
I mean, if we as followers of Jesus just packed up our bags and moved as far away from the rest of the world as we could, sometimes that sounds like a good idea. We're like, oh, I'd love that. You know, just be far away and I'd just be with a bunch of Christians. If we could just pack all the Christians up on like a new space rocket and go to Mars and set up our own little colony, how great it would be. And Jesus is saying, no. He said, because you're the light of the world. If you put it under a basket, it doesn't do what it's doing. Instead, we're to be, in those words, a city on a hill. This great picture of what it means to be one that draws people. I'm going to read a couple passages from the prophet Isaiah. First in Isaiah chapter 2. And he describes exactly that, this picture of a city on a hill. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. So the mountain, mountains are what? Up on a hill, right? As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's this great picture of God's people. God establishes his temple, and there's this temple, the people are up on this great city, and what's happening? People are streaming to it because they see what's going on. It says the same thing in the 60th chapter. See, Isaiah doesn't get tired of this. First in chapter 2, then in chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It's this incredible picture of the people of God who receive the light of God and let that light shine. And it becomes like a beacon drawing people to itself. And that's what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, salt and light are about good deeds. That's where sometimes we get a little scared. Oh, good deeds. That's, that's where, that's not what he's, he's not saying do your good deeds so people see you and praise you. What do you say? So they may see your good deeds and praise who? Your father in heaven. This isn't about doing, doing good things so you get a pat on the back. It's not doing good things so you get the little gold star. Do they still do gold stars? I don't know. I always wanted a little gold star when I was little. But the gold stars, it's saying we do these good deeds. Why? To point to Jesus. So people praise us. And this has always been the call of God's people, to be distinct, to do these things and point. The other passage we read, 1 Peter, draws in the same thing. You are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That sounds good. I mean, that's amazing stuff God's saying about us. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
And he goes on a little bit later and says the same idea of what the good deeds do. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, we're to be a salty community, not conformed to the world around us. We're to be light, not withdrawn, but beckoning and serving the world around us. To do good needs, a community that lives out Jesus' commands and loyal obedience. In the early centuries, there was a letter to a man named Diognetus. And this letter talks about how the people of God were seen by the world around. They said, well, we can't figure out these people. They're so different. And they draw people. They care for the poor. and They care for the outcast. And it was this letter, this description of the way that God's people loved and served. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Richard Niebuhr describes it as us being a pioneering community. And a book on ethics talks about it, and they says, they elaborate on pioneering by what does it mean to be a pioneering community, to be salt and light? First of all, it means saying yes to God and being changed by the Holy Spirit. Because remember, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, when he says, you are the light of the world, who's he talking to? His followers. The ones who have said yes to following Jesus. And they're being changed by the Spirit to be them. The pioneering community also takes a different path. And they lead by repentance. So it begins, first of all, with the call of God. This powerful call of Jesus. That God initiates it. This is not our decision. We're not sitting around deciding we're going to be the light of the world. But instead, Jesus calls and invites us in. Because Jesus himself is the light of the world. And so we're participating in his work in the world. And we change it on our own. And then we take a different path. And I think that's the biggest way we think about being salt and being light is we take a different path. We're not conformed to the world anymore. There's a podcast I listen to called Christianity and Politics by the Ann Campaign. And at the beginning of it, Justin Gimini, the host, he always starts off, he says, it's time to get your... Get out your Bible, get your mind right, and think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Because he's talking in the context of politics, but what he, they focus on a lot at the end came in is this tendency for us to fall into our little camps, and perhaps like the Hutus and the Tutsis, who thought first and foremost of themselves as a Hutu and as a Tutsi instead of as a Christian, sometimes in America or other places around the world, we have these other identities we take on and we think of ourselves first and foremost as those things. And it's not just in politics, although it certainly happens there, but in all of life. And Jesus' invitation is to be salt, to remain pure, to remain distinct. And instead of being caught up in those things, to say our allegiance is to Jesus and not follow the patterns of the world. Or as James Bryan Smith talks about it, he says, we ought to be maladjusted to greed, to injustice, to materialism, to racism. We ought to be maladjusted to those things. Those things shouldn't, but for some reason, we sometimes become adjusted to those things. We begin to normalize what isn't right and good and beautiful. And so we pay attention to how Jesus lived. The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, what Jesus describes, and so for example, uh, think of the example of power. 
And there's always a temptation, and that, if we go back to our Rwandan genocide, there was the minority group, the Tutsis, and the Hutus who were the majority group in power. And they used that power. And there's always a temptation, even if it's not in the same violence, the same sort of genocide as the Hutus, but to use the power to serve our own group. It comes in churches where there's maybe a church board or maybe a family in the church that has the power, that has the money, and oftentimes then uses that power to what? To serve themselves, to drive their own agenda. It happens in politics. We want to serve and we want to put our own people in power to serve ourselves. Nobody ever says, I'm going to vote for that person because they're going to help the people I don't like. We try and put people in power. Why? Because we think they're going to serve us. But what's interesting is if we follow the life of Jesus and his talk about the use of power, and he looks at his disciples, he says, the leaders of the Gentiles, the religious leaders, they use their power and they lord it over others. And then he says, but it is not to be so among you. Jesus, we're going to in a few moments practice or celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And at that dinner, the night before he's crucified, Jesus does something radical. He does something amazing where he looks at his followers and then he wraps a towel around his waist and he bends and he washes their feet. And he says, this is my example to you, to be a servant, to not use power to lord it over. Jesus' greatest act of power, his act of glory, is dying on a cross. And so if we think of what it looks like to show the power of God, we say the power of God was demonstrated on the cross. And no one on that day looking at a man bleeding and suffering, humiliated in shame on a cross would think, that's a picture of power. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like. And so we have to ask ourselves, as salt of the earth, are we concerned about the church's power or the needs of the world? Are we concerned about the church's power or the needs of the world? Are we focused on the well-being of society and those who are trampled rather than our own interests? And so often it's so easy to do. We get caught up in thinking about what's good for me. What's going to help me in advancing our own interests? And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You're to be distinct. You're to be different. You're to stay salty. And to stay salty as followers of Jesus looks like using our power, our privilege for the sake of others and those who don't have it. And it's all in service to God's mission. We're a part of what God is doing in the world. We're salt and light to point to God, to participate in His work, and to focus on Jesus and not to let our witness diminish. And I think that's what he's getting at. If the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes a sense in which we let our witness diminish. And it's so easy to do. What does it look like to lose saltiness? Sometimes the church loses its saltiness through the way it treats people. Sometimes it's a fallen leader. Sometimes it's the words that say... And one of the things we realize 
when the witness of the church or the witness of an individual is damaged, it's really hard to recover. It's possible, but it's hard. And so Jesus is saying, don't lose your saltiness. Don't allow yourself to be shaped and conformed and transformed by the world, but be changed by who God is doing, what God is doing in us. But we're also reminded, in some sense, that we fall short. And so the other way we serve as salt and light is to lead in repentance. To lead by saying, we miss the mark, we fall short. So God is calling us, and Jesus speaks to us today and says, you are the salt of the earth. Remain pure. Remain faithful. Be distinct from the world around you. Be pioneers. Show what it looks like to follow Jesus. To love the least and the last. To not crave for power, but to give up power. To lay down our lives for the sake of others. To love your enemy as you love yourself. To pray for those who persecute you. He says, you are the light of the world. Don't hide, but instead let your light shine. Let people see what you're doing. Do good deeds and let people see them, not so they will pat you on the back, but they'll praise God and they'll see who he is. And be salt and light by showing that one of the things we all need to do is to repent to turn our lives around. Repentance is to being sorry for our sins, but it's also to change and to turn. So when Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, he's saying, enter into a new way of life, a new way of following me and finding hope and in forgiveness in me. And so as we come to the communion table, Jesus invites us to be salt and to be light, to let our light shine so that people may see our Father in heaven and praise Him. Amen.